What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's coming up on Mother's Day, so happy Mother's Day to all mothers around the world, but especially new mothers. Today's guest, Willa Goodfellow's mother, made meatloaf Mondays at the family's boutique resort in Costa Rica so that the U.S. tourists had their comfort food. Willa's memoir is not titled Meatloaf Mondays. It's called Prozac Monologues, A Voice from the Edge, from She Writes Press, a firsthand account of flying, a metaphor if ever there was one, seven and a half hours while returning from said Costa Rica resort with her yellow pad in her lap, pen in hand, writing furiously while, while her wife Helen sat beside her. It seemed industrious at the time, maybe driven, and as it turns out, manic. ProzacMonologues.com is Willa's website, blog, resource center, and help sanctuary. Welcome, Willa. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Diane. I've been looking forward to this. Where, where are you calling in from? We're going from our home to home, and I always like to know, where, where are you phoning in from? Well, from my office in Sisters, Oregon, uh, edge of the Circle of Fire, the oh, dry side of Oregon. Aha. Uh-huh. So another edge then. And then if we're looking at Oregon, are we upper left, lower left? Where, where is the circle of fire and where, where does the edge, where are you? The circle of fire is a line that runs um, just really down the globe, Alaska to uh, whatever, Patagonia. It's mm-hmm. uh, a line of volcanoes. Uh-huh. So I'm on the east side of that, the east side of the Cascade Mountains. Okay. The town was named after the the three mountains that we can see from our back deck, the the three sisters. Oh, beautiful. So hopefully it erupts on the western side, or does it, do they erupt? It's dormant at this point. Well, they're dormant, but we're getting ready for what they call the big one. Oh, <laughs> and the it's, big one. It's one of those, yeah, it's one of those, it'll happen when it happens. And for that matter, the way these things work, something could, something could come up in our backyard. And wow. then we wow. wouldn't have to worry about where our grab-and-go bag is. <laughs> yeah. But it would be good if we had a visual then, right? Like then we should be on, we should have, we should have the whole, no, we should be evacuating you. But, you know, we'd leave behind the camera so that we could see it. I mean, I think it's really interesting. Oh, yeah. You mentioned this um, because, of course, there is no control over something like a volcano. And I think that control is something we really prize, right? When something starts to happen to you that's out of control, like that's bad. And like the the pandemic, you know, we all feel helpless. And 
When you started to, when you started scribbling furiously in 2005, when you started feeling a little accelerated, maybe exhilarated, but a little too much exhilarated, and, and your wife Helen said, maybe not, maybe not so normal. How, how was that to try to start to admit that maybe something was going on? Oh, I didn't admit that for a long time. When I was writing the original monologues, it was simply exhilarating. It was like, oh my gosh, I have a book inside of me, and it has to get out. I had the sense that, well, I was coming off of Prozac at the time, and I had the sense that when the Prozac was gone, maybe this energy was going to be gone. I thought of the book really as a character that had a short lifespan, And I had to get it out on paper before it was gone. So that was incredible to me. It was the first time I'd written a book. Mm -hmm. And you were coming Yeah. How how long did it take you? It was probably quick, right? Well, yeah. Within a couple of weeks, I was back into plain old depression. Mm. And... um, that began really uh, a series, <clears throat> excuse me, a series of trying different antidepressants, getting worse with each one until I refused to take any more. But it took me about five years to get to a bipolar diagnosis and to understand what was actually going on. I, I found this to be hugely frustrating. I don't know how you really stayed calm to even be talking, you know, and, and writing and, and blogging today. Because to be misdiagnosed for five years is just, you know, it's so frustrating. But there's lots of reasons for it. Can you just reel us back a little bit? You were coming off of Prozac because you had suffered depression. When do you think the whole, let's say, cycle of it began? Well, I was depressed probably off and on, probably since I was about four. And that would have been a clue if doctors, besides the experts in bipolar, if doctors recognized that early onset depression is a heads up to possibly being bipolar. It takes people an average of seven and a half years to get to diagnosis, correct diagnosis. Um, And I'd had episodes of depression, recognizable depression throughout my life. I I had probably, maybe not diagnosable, but hypomanic um, time periods also through my life. Mm -hmm. But from the time I was on Prozac, which kicked off first a mixed episode and then was followed by this hypomanic episode, it took about five years. I I find that seven and a half years is also mind-boggling as an average seven and a half years. Yeah. 
So think of what happens in a lifespan, you know, in seven and a half years. When you're talking, I mean, you know, I mentioned control just because I, I, I think that we do go into denial when we think something's happening that's beyond our control. And if you, so control then, it to me, it's also, you know, we try to pinpoint when did it start? Why did it start? What occurred? You know, what happened to me um, that precipitated this? And in Prozac mm-hmm. monologues, I, I found you to be refreshingly um, blame-free or refreshingly attribution-free. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Is, is well, that I, your, I tried. Yeah. Is that your course? Is that, that how you frame it? Yeah, that's intentional. Um, is that how you frame it for yourself, or do you still go back and look for causes? Well, the causes for my bipolar, uh, of the mental illnesses, that is the one that's most genetically uh, related. Mm-hmm. I think about 75% of people who have bipolar have some kind of genetic link, right? Uh, some, some family link. And so there isn't any blame to be given right. there. Certainly... There was trauma in my life, and trauma is a trigger for a genetic predisposition. Mm-hmm. And at some point, yeah, at some point you just have to say, well, my mother was doing the best that she could. Um, yeah. And that has been a lifelong, that's been a lifelong struggle to get to that point, but that's the point that one has to get to. Right. I have, I have, such a, I have a friend, um, Judy Rusky Rabinar. I'm, I, gosh, I must apologize. I've messed up her name. She's just released a book. I think the that's The Girl close. in the Red Boots. Yes. And and she lately has been calling it the perfect book for the person who has an imperfect mother or who is one. Uh-huh. Very and appropriate. Reading that book right, reading that book now, I'm um I'm refer I'm referring it to it as the book that you won't be the same after you've read it. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't the anyway. same after I read your book. I, I wasn't the same after I read Prozac Monologues. I thought it was very oh. hands-on and very helpful. Um, I also like the fact that you didn't pretend. Um, and you took the lid off and like looked inside of a dark place um, and um, yeah. and shed, shed some light on it. I I think the interesting mm-hmm. thing, um, you know, when you mention about the genetic encoding. So my understanding is that, you know, you could be genetically encoded, but then there, as you say, are triggers, and this goes back to, I mean, I'm really going to tongue twist here, the stress diathesis model, where if there's something that um, precipitates what's dormant in your genetic coding, um, it can Mm -hmm. come out at that that time. Um, Right. I think also this book is brilliant because it's, chock-a-block with great information. Um, and mm. I, will, I will let readers know that it does also include 
some of what I would call the in-situ um, writing. You write in, in mania so that we understand the rhythm of mania, which is just amazing and, and I think a great balance. Um, but you know mm-hmm. that tw- 20%, that to address the confusion, I'm just going to, then I'm going to shut up, but I, to address the confusion, you note in Prozac monologues that 20% of the population will have major depression. So that's a big number right there. Half of a, a right. whole lot of half of the whole lot of episodes, uh, half of twenty percent will be way up, but more often way down. So yes. no no wonder then, Willa, that it is yes. diagnosed as depression most of the time, right? Correct. Right. Um, yeah, you don't go to the doctor to say, oh my gosh, I just wrote a book in two weeks. Um, what's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. So um, that's, that's one of the dilemmas because, and part of my frustration, while I, as you said, I try to remain blame-free, still I don't think doctors have in mind this person who's slouching in the chair and can't meet my eyes and hasn't bathed and has been depressed for three months, there's a 50-50 chance that this person has bipolar. They're not thinking that. They're just Mm -hmm. looking at what they see and what the patient tells them. And the patient, when you feel good, you don't remember feeling bad. When you feel bad, you don't remember feeling good. The patient is not really able to guide the doctor into the correct diagnosis. Doctors like to say, well, bipolar is hard to diagnose. And I have to come back with, yes, it is. And that's your job. Because I, I didn't get my diagnosis until I figured it out. Yeah, that's scary. Um, now, I, there, was, there was a doctor who, said, who sat next to me on an airplane and based on my behavior in the airplane said, why don't you go home and Google MDQ, mm-hmm. which is a plain language um, screening device, one that, uh, that the individual person and their family members can use to see to determine, well, maybe this is bipolar. Maybe yeah. this is something that needs to be checked out. But I love that it's a they, stranger on an airplane. That's like it's like a it's like an angel, you yeah. know, embo- embodied next to you that like is saying, well, maybe you should try the bipolar questionnaire. I mean, holy smokes! When you've been in therapy all this time and are taking all of these prescriptions that are in fact aggravating your situation. But as you say, nobody's mm-hmm. going to go nobody's going to go flying into the therapist when they're high, when they're on their up mania. So Right. But I'm still I hear it in your voice too. I'm still back on well, if 50 they're not suggesting the doctor is not saying 50% of the time it could be bipolar. I'm sort of like, well, why not? You know, because Look at now, you've held up yourself as an example. I'm going to give our listeners um, a short bio of you because it's also fascinating um, to segue from the 
plain angel, which I do believe there are those. Willow mm-hmm. Goodfellow's early work with troubled teens as an Episcopal priest, you were an Episcopal priest, shaped an yeah. edgy perspective and preaching style, a bachelor's degree from Reed College and a master's from Yale University, gave you the intellectual chops to read and comprehend scientific research about mental illness and your life mileage taught you to recognize and call out the bull. Um, so you... Uh, have set out to turn your own misbegotten sojourn in the land of antidepressants into a writing career. Your journalism has attracted the attention of leading psychiatrists who work on the DSM-5. You are certified in mental health first aid, graduated from NAMI's peer-to-peer, and you've presented on mental health recovery at NAMI events and Carver Medical College of Medicine at the University of Iowa. Today, you hike, yeah. travel, plan several seven-course dinner menus, work on the next writing project, Bar Tales of Costa Rica, and you stir up trouble. Thank you. I'm so glad of that. You live with your wife, Helen, in Central Oregon, and you still miss your dog, Maisie. I'm, I'm sort of wondering why you don't have another dog, but maybe that's in the works, too. <laughs> Is it? We tried, actually. We adopted a rescue that we named Grace after a pirate queen, an Irish pirate queen. And when we adopted her, she was too afraid to leave the driveway. She had been raised in Idaho, basically in a pack. And once we spent a couple of months taking her, bringing her out of her shell, And when she was fully out of her shell, what we had was a feral dog. Mm -hmm. And that was not a good fit for a couple of old ladies living in town. She really needed to live where she could run free. And Mm -hmm. so that's what we did. We took her back to find some place where she could run free. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's a beautiful thing in itself. I, I think also respecting uh, instinct and your own and your own limitations. Um, you talk in the book about people. It reminds me go, who go from A to B in a linear way at, versus people who are dance, dancers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think this is this is an interesting question. We have just a minute before we take a commercial break. But we are going to come back uh, with Willa Goodfellow and discuss and discuss which you are. I have a feeling we've got an idea here brewing, um, and what and to identify whether we're going from point A to point B, or whether we're dancers, and then what's the role of perfectionism in all of this, and do we drive ourselves crazy on top of it all? Don't go away. We're going to take a break now and come back with Willa Goodfellow on Dropping In, author of Prozac Monologues, and we're going to hear more monologues that will be so enlightening. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. 
Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Willa Goodfellow, who was, in her career, an Episcopalian priest and now is, um, I would say, ministering to people, but from a wonderful website, ProzacMonologues.com, which is the site of her blog, and through a book, Prozac Monologues, A Voice from the Edge. So, Willa Goodfellow, we we talked a little bit about going from point A to point B in a linear way, A to Bers, you call them, uh, versus dancers. So, where do you fall in this um, in this spectrum, if you will? How do you describe yourself in this? I think generally, I guess I'm a dancer, but I will say when I was talking about point A to point B versus dancing. You need both kinds in a group that's trying to get something done. And my work, uh, the work that I truly loved and from which I became disabled and had to quit involved bringing groups together, uh, a group of individuals within a congregation who had a variety of skills and intentionally including both kinds to be creative and get something accomplished. So if I'm in a group of dancers and we're trying to get something done, I might fall into my A to B side. But if we're in a... If it's all A to B people, I get frustrated and I try to mix things up. There's a special alchemy when that happens, right? I mean, you yes, you, ex- yes. you experience something more than the sum of its parts. And um, you, you talk in the book about um, finding a support group, actually, realizing that maybe, I mean, even from your resume, you can tell maybe you knew a, a lot more. Maybe they were just unwilling to speak that day. But just the feeling of not being that one who is different, I mean, talk to us mm-hmm. about what it's like to feel so much otherness and versus when you are in a group. Right. I am one of those people that's called high-functioning mental Ill, mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And that means you wouldn't think most of the time that I am spending a whole lot of energy managing Myself monitoring, is my voice too loud? 
or am I going off on the deep end, or no. are my sentences in, uh, are my words in an order that makes sense to people, because I can start dancing in my sentences like I'm doing right now. Oh, no. Anyway. Um, we'll dance with you, that's okay. Att- <laughs> paying attention to those things uh, just gets tiring, takes a lot of energy, and when I'm with a group of normies, I can go home from that and just be exhausted, even if I don't know exactly what was exhausting about it. And when I am with others of my kind, Mm -hmm. then they're just delighted to have my sentences go off into the ozone, and they follow along just fine and are entertained. Mm -hmm. I find that in in my reviews, um, I get a combination of, boy, this sounds like she wrote it when she was manic. I'm so glad her editor didn't fix it, five stars. Or, boy, she sounds like she wrote this when she was manic. I wish her editor had fixed it, one star. (laughs) Well... (laughs) There's the perfectionism coming in. You know, the thing is, it's all in the point of view. And you balanced the book. There is there is a tipping point. There is a point, like in the beginning, you're dancing. You are, there's circularity. There's real interest, I would say, in understanding the cadence. And um, we go along with you for the ride, which there is no substitute yeah. for that, right? It's kind of like onomatopoeia. Yeah. If you, you say whoosh and you understand what a whoosh is. If you don't say mm-hmm. it, you, you can't experience it. You can't know it. It's like describing music or something. You know, that's not possible. So I, I really yeah. thank you for, for having done that. Um, don't forget that on Bewitched, Samantha always called them mortals. Like she, she had to be with mortals, and you know she knew she had these extra powers with the twitching nose and everything. I mean, I, I think that what you're describing about having to I mean, seriously you know, circumscribe yourself, it must be very exhausting. And I think the thing I'm extremely thankful for in the book is your pragmatic approach to the the how-to guide of how to live um, in mm-hmm. in recovery, which, as you say, um, you know, trauma can both be the cause and the consequence of uh, being bipolar. Tell us about the 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 four things that you need to work into your life in order to stay well balanced. Right. There are lifestyle measures like a sleep schedule. Well, schedule is the most important, and sleep in particular, nutrition, exercise, those kinds of things. There's education and um, self-awareness. So that the more you learn about your condition, that easier it is to manage it. There's support, which comes from peers, family, therapists, whoever, the team. Mm -hmm. And then there's medication. And when, um, when things have become manageable, then medication can become less important. There are lots of people who can never 
stop taking their meds. And I don't imagine that I will ever be medication-free, and I, and I don't consider that a goal. Uh, medication is one of the tools in the recovery um, toolbox. But the four of them together, I think the reason that a lot of people with bipolar continuously struggle is that they expect the medication to do all the work. And it can't overcome bad habits. Just like a diabetic is not going to receive, is not going to achieve stability in their blood sugar if they don't make diet adjustments. Right. Well, um, let's break this let's with, break, Yeah, let's break this down because I think you've hit on like a number of really critical um, issues mm-hmm. and question and questions. First of all, the the idea that medication is going to do everything isn't that sort of an offshoot of, well, bipolar is a chemical imbalance in the brain. So if we just put some drugs in, then then that's going to be solved, right? Right, right. It's, right. That's, that's the perspective, and it's totally wrong. Yeah. And um, you, you took responsibility. Yeah, this, chem- this chemical imbalance line was designed to sell antidepressants. It was designed by a drug company. Doctors, some doctors hate it. Others find it an easy shortcut to convince people to take their medication. There's nothing wrong with taking a medication. It's just like fixing a chemical imbalance. The problem with that is that it neglects all the other things that have to happen because bipolar, depression as well, but bipolar is a complex condition with a lot of different aspects to it and and it's a matter of balance. There's, you know, you've got too much dopamine, let's take down your dopamine. Well, you do some of the time, but other times... Your dopamine's just fine. And so you have to learn how to balance, not just add more salt to the soup because the saltiness of the soup keeps changing if you're bipolar. Mm-hmm. It's a cycle, right? Yes. That's and the word. That's the word. So you're cycling constantly, and we are all cycling, and I think we are all on, you know, a certain part of the spectrum cycling um, through our energies. But I think you're, the education part and the self-awareness part, which your book, um, I think, goes leaps and bounds um, toward uh, really enriching, is you, the part I loved was, you know, you, at one point you, you sensed, you, you told Helen, look, I've got like, I feel like I've got holes in my brain. And then it turns out that actually your brain is eroding <laughs> with, with, with bipolar, but education can actually multiply cells in your brain to replenish yes. them. I mean, this is yes. huge, Willa. This is huge. That's the latest, that's the latest, um, or one of the latest research areas is, uh, what's it called? Well, the neurotrophic factor, the, the brain regenerating itself 
as a way of treating bipolar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was huge. When I went from having holes in my head to realizing, ah, but I'm repairing the holes in my head. Mm-hmm. That's very educa- exciting to me. It's very exciting. It gives you agency. It's part of the balance. And there's no downside to becoming more educated, um, even though the education is changing all the time and, you know, keeping up with the 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 theories i mean right now you also indicated that there's more empirical tests uh that even through a blood test the ekgs or a you know which would measure uh, agitation but even a blood test may be able to detect the inflammation that occurs yes yeah <sighs> How much hope do you put into those kinds of things? And do you think it will help the DSM writers get to a better stage of defining these? these, Oh, um, you know, I think the DSM, frankly, has to be scrapped. It was originally, I mean, it went to press when it was really just an untested rough draft of a handful of scientists sitting down and coming up with symptoms lists. And the subsequent additions have tried to refine those symptoms lists, but they haven't attempted to include all of the things that are actually going on inside of the brain. So they really just just need to develop a new approach. Yeah. Um, and so be sh- to be, not to be giving jargon, DSM is the, um, is the guidebook, the dictionary basically to uh, mental health um, illnesses. And um, it is right. widely referred to. And I would say it's a big contributor to why you spent, you know, those years in the wilderness. I'm sorry. I really, it just seems as though, you know, as you say, if you're trying to, you keep, if you keep trying to address what was thought of as depression, and then the pharmaceutical itself that you're taking is giving you mixed episodes, you're, you're never really getting closer to identifying and it just feels so frustrating. And I'm just, I, again, respect so much that you've come to this point of acceptance and have adopted this, this recovery lifestyle. My, one of my favorites is sleep, but um, just because I I love sleep and the regenerative qualities (laughs) of sleep um, and how things look different the next day, but also just the idea. Now, what do you, when you, when you talk about the sleep schedule being important, do you ascribe that to circadian rhythms? Why is it important to have a sleep schedule? Yes, exactly. It's circadian rhythms. We have, all of us have an internal clock that regulate all kinds of systems in our bodies. Uh, and mood is only one of them. To call bipolar or depression a mood disorder does disservice because it ignores temperature fluctuation, added, um, appetite, cortisol um, levels, stress levels, energy levels, um, the release of all kinds of hormones. Mm -hmm. Now, 
you, if you should become obsessive about this and take your blood pressure at different times of the day, consistently over time you would notice a pattern that your blood pressure isn't the same at 8 a.m. as it is at 8 p.m. For mm-hmm. people with bipolar, um, we our circadian rhythms, our inner clocks are wonky. They don't keep, keep time very well. And one of the most effective treatments for bipolar is to find a way to keep resetting the clock throughout the day. Uh-huh. And sleep is a big piece of that. If you can, if you get up, particularly when you get up, I didn't sleep very well last night, but I got up on time. Mm-hmm. So get that early morning sunlight, and that helps reset the circadian clock. And then a then certain amount other- of time before you have to see, yeah, to be before you can see someone. There's a certain amount of time. And I think, does that depend on whether you're an introvert or an extrovert? Or I thought that was interesting. No, it doesn't. No, uh-huh. it doesn't. You set, you set your system, and then you keep to your system. I mean, you find a system that works with, for you, um, and that might be, I want to have a conversation 15 minutes after I get up. Mm-hmm. If you do that every day, that will start your day off right. If um, it, me, I need to be up for about an hour and a half before I talk to anybody, but that's Ultimately, that doesn't matter as long as I keep doing the same thing at the same time. Now, the beginning of the day and the end of the day are the most important times. In the middle, there's lots of variation. I mean, you don't, um, it's not a straitjacket. But But the the timekeepers that have the most effects are the morning ones. Which I think is a perfect excuse to not have to speak to my husband over a cup of tea too early. I'm very, I'm telling you, there is a lot of practical advice in this book. Prozac monologues. And, and we, we've come to the point where we have to take a commercial break. But I, I really, I'm fascinated by the practicality of it all. And when we come back, we'll continue talking with Willa Goodfellow. And uh, we're going to find out more about everything. Pura Vida. Um, bar mitzvahs uh, and all of it and don't go away we'll be right back on Dropping In Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker if you have Alexa or Google Home go ahead and give us a try hey Alexa Play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Willa Goodfellow, and you have pointed out some steps that we can take, people can take, to uh, to balance out the pharmacological effects that might be helping. Um, sometimes it seems that the pharmacological um, which you've already stated, cannot be a substitute for, let's say, cognitive uh, learning, um, but that it's also uh, something that is going to be limiting in the sense that if you are bipolar, you really never know when you're going to have um, a manic episode. So to put too much faith in it, right, Willa, is just going to be wrongheaded. You've got to be taking these steps. Right. The, the medications for bipolar never do advertise that they will get rid of your manic episodes. They can't advertise that because they don't. They reduce the frequency, and that is a relief. They also reduce the intensity, and that also is a relief. But but you still need to be paying attention because actually there are most of us, when, when we start paying attention to what's happening right before we have an episode, we can see telltale signs and we can make early interventions either to shut it off at the pass or to reduce the intensity. For example, if I have an occasional sleepless night, I don't worry about it, but if I have three in a row, then I say, no, that's it, and I take a um, medication for sleep. And um, I don't do that usually. I don't need that usually because of my sleep, uh, because I maintain my sleep schedule pretty religiously. But, but occasionally I do have that difficulty and I can cut that off early by There's intervening a- before I get really sick. Right. Um, which is a blessing. There's a vulnerability when we don't sleep, right? I mean, you can also quite easily slip, if you're prone, slip into a kind of depressive state or even just a negative state. I mean, sleep really is that, you know, I'm so glad that you embraced it um, and talked about it uh, to the extent that you did. Um, I also want to talk about another thing that was quite prevalent in your book, and that's humor. What about ah, yes. what what about being funny and what's the role of being funny and how does it help? How does it help? How does it hinder? What does it do? Right. I used humor in really I think three different ways in the book. Originally, the first monologue was a coping mechanism. I'd had a traumatic experience, a disturbing experience, and trying to understand it, I turned it into a comedy routine. 
That let me suppress all the scary parts, which I did for years, and uh, give me a way of, of understanding or, or just coping with it. Later, it became a therapeutic device. Mm-hmm. If you can change the frame of a thought, you can change its meaning. So with some, now that's hard to do when you're in the middle of something terrible, but with a little time and distance, you can come to recognize the absurdity of some situation. Mm-hmm. The absurdity of leaning over a hotel, a, a railing in a hotel 13 floors up and, and think, oh, but if I fall, I might not kill myself. I might be paralyzed besides, ouch. Yes. So uh, when I laugh at what is really tragic, it loses its power to hurt me. Mm-hmm. And then finally, humor is a communication strategy. Comedians get to talk about stuff that uh, we don't normally talk about in public. Yeah. So when I make a joke about disturbing things, then the normies don't get scared and call 911. <laughs> and the people who have been there, them, the people who've been there themselves recognize that I have experienced what they have and it's like a signal between us. They, they are not alone. Yep. Robin Williams. All of those things. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I feel it's so, right. I mean, I feel as though I can just hear him when you brought that up. Um, and mm-hmm. what, is, what is humor about? It's always about sex or death, right? I mean, what else mm-hmm. is funny? Right. I mean, because, because what else do we take so seriously that it needs that puncture, right, to, to cope? Yes. Uh, you know? Yes. Um, I, I thought that was, and, and that is something that you truly demonstrate and are authentic to throughout the book. You got invited to um, Costa Rica to the boutique resort uh, to bless the bar. That was part of your, that was part of your job there. <laughs> and, right. And, <laughs> which you turned into a bar mitzvah, although you specified that a mitzvah is slightly different. Um, what's the... <laughs> But you did it, right? You blessed the bar. That's correct, right? Yes. Yes, we did. We did. And that um, creativity, you talk about how there's a lot of stories about, you know, creativity and justifying because, you know, this energy also makes you very creative, but that doesn't make it all positive, right? I mean, but you've got this wellspring of creativity. How do you go about writing now? What's your writing practice? Ah, well, it's uh, this last month, it's just been disrupted because I was preparing to give a talk on the trauma of suicidal ideation, and it was an hour long, and it just took over my life for a month, and that wasn't, um, I was creative, but anyway, now I work on bar tales. I, I, there's so much going on in my life. And I finally came up with, I just need to chunk my time. And so I will write in the morning. I always write in the morning. Um, mm-hmm. Nine o'clock to mm-hmm. 11 is uh, my best writing time. And then I work on the blog or promotion or whatever in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. 
Can I ask, is that because, is it because you think that the morning, a lot of people say that sleep is when we're tapped into our unconscious. Is that what you, Mm -hmm. like it's more raw, what you're, what you're experiencing then? I think just my concentration is better. My Mm -hmm. anxiety is lower. Maybe that's it. That I just need to be free when I wrote the monologues, there was no discipline to that whatsoever. They just happened continuously and at odd, you know, early in the morning and um, late at night. It didn't, it didn't matter. But when I actually was writing a book that was that could be read, <laughs> yes, I <laughs> I had to pull it together and. Uh, that's a, you know, people think of mania as creative, and it is in a sense, but there's more to create, there's a discipline to creativity that's that a lot of people don't recognize. If coming up with ideas and accomplishing things are two different things, take two different energies. Right. So I had to get healthy before I could publish a book. Yeah. How is it now that you have published a book? How's the communication? How does it feel to be out there? Yeah, sometimes it's, um, well, I feel really exposed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because people look at you funny when they find out you have bipolar. Is there an embrace, and, though, from others, too? An embrace saying, wow, thank you, I, I'm glad you saw us. Oh, my gosh. Uh, somebody who was a tourist came through town, went to our local bookstore, Paulina Books, uh, Springs Bookstore, let me put in a plug, mm-hmm. saw my book on the shelf, picked it up, and, and said, this is what my brother is going through. He read the book. He found out that I lived here and was so excited by that coincidence that he went to my website, sent me a note, and we went back and forth a little bit. And he talked with his brother and got him to a new psychiatrist and started exploring his diagnosis. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, because undiagnosed bipolar can kill you. I, when you're being treated for depression instead, it nearly killed me. And so, yeah, that's huge. And I will take the funny looks and I will sort out my friends, the people who don't, who just feel uncomfortable mm. are not people I want to spend time with. Yeah. Is it judgment? Uh, it's is there a so judgment? Worth it. Yeah, it's so worth it. Willa, please. I mean, to to admit and to embrace this is to really be able to bring it out into the world in a place where, you know, it's all too seldom seen. And I wondered what the, um, you know, we have just a couple minutes actually left. And I wonder what the word forgiveness means to you in terms of self forgiveness and also as uh, an, a former Episcopalian, Episcopalian priest. 
Hmm. I guess maybe forgiveness is just rooted deep in the love of God that God has for each of us. And I, whatever that word means to you, the God word, I believe that love is the energy of the universe. And so if the universe ultimately loves me, then I have to love myself and I have to forgive myself for the things that I've done, make amends as I can, um, and love others in return, give back. So as I recognize my own imperfections, I have to make space for the imperfections of others. Exactly. That's not, that's not a one-time deal sometimes. Uh, the thing about trauma, it's the gift that keeps giving. Yeah. So there are some people I have forgiven over and over and over again because every once in a while, my brain serves up a memory that's very painful and I get to re-experience something that needs forgiving. Yes. So and I it, do and move on. Yeah. I I think that's exquisite. And the definition of a friend, I think, is is someone that you forgive a thousand times over and don't keep count. And that friend also has to be you. So to talk with Willa Goodfellow, you're on Twitter with Willa Goodfellow and Instagram and Facebook, uh, Willa Goodfellow author. The book is Prozac Monologues. A voice from the edge. Um, we can't thank you enough for being with you with us today. And the dedication of the book is it says it all. It's I wrote this for you. That means all of us. So thank you, Willa Goodfellow. Thank you so much um, for being here. Thank you for choosing life. That became a mantra in your book. And as you say, you've been through some scary times, looked over the edge and come back. And we're very grateful for that. We're going to thank you. Thank you you so much for being with us. And we're going to look forward to bar tales. I can tell you that. Um, Good luck writing that. (laughs) Good luck writing that book. We're so happy that you're still at work and uh, hope you get another dog. Um, Okay, so let me thank you once again. Thanks to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Cialino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe. And fly the kite that goes up and down, right, Willa? Till next week, thanks so much for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. 